You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today we're going to be doing something that really so many of you have been asking for. You've been requesting. Uh, you've sent in messages saying, thank you so much. Your podcast helped me pass the test. But I to be honest, like some of the things that we do have nothing to do with the NASM content or tech, like it's just, it's great information for personal trainers. Some of it is what's in the book and some of it is beyond what's in the book and not necessarily harder or difficult or more in depth, but it's just additional content that you don't get within the textbook and it's things that we can deliver to you. But I get a lot of questions about it. And so speaking with the team at NASM, we decided to go through, and for those that are doing the CPT-7, we are now going to take you through and do a podcast on the basics going through the content of the textbook of the Certified Personal Training Program, that CPT, Certified Personal Trainer course that you could do within the textbook. And so this will be a multi-part podcast. And we're going to have multiple domains, and each domain will be broken down into smaller podcasts. So you can listen for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. And then uh, if you want to move on to the next one, you can. So let's break this down and what it means. So the first domain is going to be basics and applied sciences and nutritional concepts. And it's weighted in the test about 15%. And so that's going to be what's called section three. So it's going to be chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. And 15% of the test is coming through that. So that'll be what we're going to talk about today. And then domain two, client relations and behavioral coaching. 15% of the weight of the test is going to come from that. There's going to be three uh, chapters, three and four. The third domain we'll talk about is going to be the assessments that is 16% of this process. That's chapters 11 and 12. Domain number four, program design, 20%. Chapters 21, 22, and 23. Domain five, exercise technique and training instruction, 24% of the weight of the exam comes from that. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And then finally, domain six, professional development and responsibility, chapters one and two, will be 10% of the weight of the exam. So what we're going to do starting today is we are going to start a podcast series. So this is going to take us through all of these testing domains and just provide a walkthrough of the content for the CPT-7. So let's get started in domain one basic and applied sciences and nutritional concepts. And we are going to talk about the human movement system. If you're listening to this, there will be a link. And in that link, in the show notes, you can click on the link and you can download some of the visuals that we're talking about. So if you're on YouTube, if you're uh, listening to the podcast, just go to the show notes, click on the link, and you'll be able to download what I'm looking at so you can see what I'm looking at as I'm talking about it. This is the human movement system. And it says there it's a collective components and structures that work together to move the body, muscular, skeletal, and nervous systems. 
And when we do this movement, all of it's accomplished through the functional integration of those three systems, nervous, nervous system, skeletal system, and muscular system. All the components work together to produce movement produce force, reduce force, dynamically stabilize. And if one component isn't working well, it's going to have an effect on the others. In the kinetic chain, when you, when you address one joint, if one joint is moving in an altered way, there's surrounding joints that are also affected. That's why it's called the kinetic chain and how they're all linked together. So if one's not working properly, it's gonna affect ultimately your movement throughout your kinetic chain. On the next slide, we look at the nervous system. And this one gets a little complex. So let's go through the nervous system and we'll talk about two major components of it. There's the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Central nervous system, you may remember this, brain and spinal cord. That's it. Brain and the spinal cord is that those two components make up the central nervous system. Everything else is out to the periphery. That's why it's called the peripheral nervous system. They nerves branch off of the central nervous system, the spinal cord, and they go out all over the body. And then it further subdivides and you have all of these subdivisions, which we'll get into in just a moment. But let's talk about the function of these. So the function of the nervous system, we've got We've got sensory functions, motor functions, and integrated functions. And what we refer to that sometimes as sensory motor integration. So let's talk about sensory. Sensory is the ability of the nervous system to sense changes in either our internal environment or the external environment. Now, when you look at the integrative components, that's the ability of the nervous system to analyze and interpret that sensory input that's coming into the central nervous system. And it helps allow for proper decision-making and then produce the appropriate responses, we hope. And then the responses are oftentimes motor responses. And the motor component of the nervous system is this neuromuscular response, the message from the central nervous system out to the muscles, that's responding to the sensory information. So movements is a response to sensory information and it's dictated by the nervous system. And it reflects the importance of training in what we'll refer to as a multi-sensory environment. The most effective way to create positive long-term results in our clients is to affect or to train, uh, to properly train, to train, Properly trained, there, that's a new word, won't be on the test, but you should know it. <laughs> You've got to train the nervous system. And so we look at training of the nervous system as highly important. So central nervous system, let's look at the central nervous system. And as we talk about the brain and the spinal cord, the spinal cord, as we go through the different components, so we have cervical nerves that branch off thoracic nerves, we have lumbar nerves and then sacral nerves that come through. And they're based, they're called based on where they come out of the, the bones, right? So if I have a C1 nerve, C2 nerve, that's where the, the nerves come out of the foramina, the little holes that create space between the, the vertebrae so that the nerves can come through. And sometimes if you ever have pinching on a nerve, uh, radiculopathy, which is nerve pain that's going through the entire length, sometimes, most times felt in the lower extremity, it's because there's compression maybe in the lumbar spine. 
that's causing pain. And that compression is a pressure as the nerve goes through those holes, the holes maybe get a little bit smaller, or if something's happening, there's bulging from a disc that's pushing on it and you'll feel some radiculopathy. Now the peripheral nervous system, this one is, you'll see where it says the nerves that communicate with the CNS. And there are a couple ways that we do that. There's voluntary control known as the somatic nervous system, soma, is body, so the voluntary control of our body. And then there's the autonomic nervous system, and that is involuntary control. So those would be things like your heart beating and breathing and metabolic functions that take place within the body. And there are two components of that. And these have become very popular in recent years as maybe components of recovery and stress management and um, the way that that we induce um, anxiety uh, or reduce anxiety through exercise. And so we have a sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system. And here's the way that I like to think about sympathetic. And a sympathetic is where maybe we're a bit heightened in the way that we act or that we respond. And I like to think about that as sympathies or the way that our emotions work. So the sympathetic nervous system is going to be the more heightened components of it, the more uh, of a stress response that could be there. Now the parasympathetic is more calming. Parasympathetic is more relaxing. And we see components of this where we start to induce the parasympathetic nervous system, maybe through focused breathing. And as we control our breathing, we can slow down our heart rate and address the functions that are minimizing now the those sympathetic or those fight or flight responses. So sympathetic is sometimes referred to as fight or flight or freeze, and the parasympathetic is the rest, digest, and recovery phase of our nervous system responses. Right, moving on to the next slide, we talk about mechanoreceptors. And these are important and they'll pay, play a big role when we talk oftentimes about flexibility training. So we're gonna talk about some mechanoreceptors specifically are gonna be the muscle spindle, Golgi tendon organ, and joint receptors. So let's talk about the muscle spindle first. The muscle spindle is inside the muscle and, and, and shaped spindle like a spring. And the reason it's shaped like a spring is that the muscle spindle is there and is very sensitive to changes in muscular length and like how fast it changes length and the amount of length that it changes. So you might look at this as, I refer to sometimes as the stretch-ometer. It measures the amount of stretch or length. It measures the rate of strength, uh, of length or um, stretch in a muscle. And so how I remember it is muscle spindle, spindle starts with an S, stretch starts with an S. So when you're looking at muscle spindle, and maybe if you see this on the test, it may not say stretch, but it may say length. So just combine, make those words kind of mean the same for you. And if we're looking about changes in length, rate, or changes in length in general, that's going to be the muscle spindle will measure that. 
Now the Golgi tendon organ, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pop that way, that tendon, I'm gonna really focus on tendon because it starts with a T. And the reason I wanna do that is because the GTO, the Golgi tendon organ is sensitive to the changes in muscular tension. Tension is the word. It is your tensionometer. It is measuring the rate of tension change and the amount of tension change. So the T in tendon and the T for tension. Remember that, and that will help you on the test. <gasps> Wink. So keep that in mind and understand some of the ways in which this works. Let's look at stretching as an example. And we use hamstrings because hamstrings is just such a common muscle that we talk about in general in the fitness world for flexibility. So we go and do a hamstring stretch. As I stretch the hamstring, the muscle spindle shaped like a spring is measuring the amount of stretch. And we get to a point where the muscle spindle goes, I, I, I've, I've seen, I've felt how much this is being pulled and stretched and I don't think it's safe. And because it is the stretchometer, it is measuring the change in length, the lengthometer. It's measuring that and saying, you've gone too far. I'm going to stop you from stretching any further. But as it stops and keeps you from stretching any further, you're creating tension. And so the Golgi tendon organ is feeling that tension. That tension is building up in the muscle. And after about 30 seconds of a moderate, mild stretch, the GTO is saying, look, I feel that it is safe now for us to calm down. There's a lot of tension here, and I think that we can minimize the amount of tension. I have measured the tension, and I think that we can calm it down. And that's what we call autogenic inhibition. Autogenic inhibition is when the prolonged GTO stimulation provides an inhibitory action to the muscle spindle located in the same muscle. So we are now going to relax it. And usually what happens is after about 30 seconds, we relax it. You can now go a little bit farther into that stretch and the process repeats. The muscle spindle says, ooh, I don't like the extra amount of stretch. Let's create some tension. GTO says, hey, I don't like the amount of tension. Let's release it. And it just goes on and on like that as we work through flexibility concepts. Now that's autogenic inhibition. Autogenic is the muscle receptors within the same muscle are creating this inhibitory process. Reciprocal inhibition is something different. Reciprocal inhibition is the simultaneous contraction of one muscle and the relaxation of its antagonistic to allow for movement to take place. For instance, as I contract my bicep, the tricep on the other end says, oh, let me back off. I'm going to try not to contract. So not only are you trying to lift something, you're not fighting against me in the process to do it. So it creates reciprocal inhibition. Remember reciprocal from, uh, I don't know, seventh grade, eighth, ninth grade, and math, from math. So reciprocal infractions, you're looking at the number on the other side. We flip it, get the reciprocal. We're going to flip this muscle. I'm going to flex my elbow, my bicep contracts, and then the muscle on the other side, the tricep relaxes. And we can do this in basically any joint action as I go into hip extension. That with my glute being a primary contractor in that, then that can help to release or create a reciprocal inhibition of my hip 
flexors. So muscle, muscles on the other side of the joint relax, allow these muscles to contract appropriately. So the flexibility techniques that we're using rely on this principle to develop greater range of motion at our joints. So there's one more thing maybe we should talk about here. And this, again, the mechanoreceptors talk directly about flexibility is something called the stretch shortening cycle. And the stretch shortening cycle is Think about if you're going to run, run up and you're going to drop down to jump, right? You don't just run up and jump. You will do a little quick uh, drop down to get up higher. So I'm going to try to get up as high as I can. So I do a little drop. Now don't drop deep into a squat to jump really high because there are some issues there that don't create, it minimizes your stretch shortening cycle. So it's a quick stretch. Now with that quick stretch, remember the muscle spindle is measuring the amount of stretch, but the rate of stretch. And if we stretch a muscle quickly, then the muscle spindle goes, whoop, tightens up. And as it does that, the stretch shortening cycle, it stretches that muscle. And then we, along with that automatic response to engage, we now have a voluntary engagement at the same time. And it allows us to be able to jump up higher. So we eccentrically load a muscle and we prepare through that rapid contraction and a voluntary contraction to be able to jump a little bit higher. So those are mechanoreceptors. The muscle spindle is the length or stretchometer. The GTO, Golgi tendon organ, is the tensionometer, measuring the amount and rate of tension. And then we have other joint receptors that work throughout the process at the same time. Okay, moving on now to the skeletal system. Let's talk about why it's there first. And the reason we have a skeletal system is first of all, it provides shape to our body, our form to our body. It supports and protects our internal organs. It provides the structure from which movement is created. And then the last thing, which is pretty interesting actually, muscle, uh, sorry, skeletal system produces blood for the body and it also stores minerals. So we have the skeletal system and it provides these different things to our body. And think about this, it's the resting ground for muscles because our muscles are attaching to the bones. Bones form junctions that are connected by muscles through connective tissues that are known as joints. So bones and bones attach to each other through joints, muscles attached to bones through tendons and these allow for our movement, our locomotion, our ambulation to take place. And there are two big parts, two large divisions of the skeletal system. There's the axial skeleton, which is made up of the skull, the rib cage, and the vertebral column. Then there's the appendicular, where we get the term appendages. The appendicular skeleton, the upper and lower extremities, and it's gonna include our shoulder girdle and our pelvic girdle. So those are the divisions of the skeletal system. And if we go through, we can break down the cervical spine. So let's look at the, the cervical spine. We've have, um, the cervical spine is that of the neck. Thoracic spine is our thorax. So it goes from the base of the neck through where our ribs attach. And then the lumbar spine is our low back. Oftentimes we hear breakfast, lunch, and dinner, seven, 12, and five. So seven cervical vertebrae, seven o'clock in the morning, you may eat breakfast, uh, 12 for thoracic, 
at 12 noon. Maybe you're having lunch and a very early five o'clock dinner for many people, seven, 12, and five lumbar vertebrae. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven, 12, and five. And that's always been kind of the go-to, not, I mean, just you know, canise worldwide, learning about the body. These are great little things to help us remember which way to go. Now, there are numerous components of the, the skeletal system, and we can go through the skeletal system, but there is a podcast that has already been done entitled Bones. So go and check out the NASM CPT podcast entitled Bones and takes you through bones of the body, the, the ribs, the arms, the legs, the hands. So you'll go through all of those bones in that particular podcast. One of the things I don't think we talked about in that podcast, so let's address here, are the different types of bones. There are long bones. Those long bones will be kind of the bones that we think about oftentimes. We think of bones, like our arms and our legs, the femur, the humerus, the tibia, fibula, those are long bones. Short bones would be bones of the wrist and the ankles, the carpals and metacarpals, um, I'm sorry, carpals and tarsals. And then we've got flat bones, and the flat bones would be like your shoulder blade, the scapula, or the bones in the pelvis, like the, the ilium. What about irregular bones? Those are interesting. So irregular bones would include maybe muscle uh, bones of the vertebrae. There's something they have these odd, weird shapes and they're not long or short. They're not flat, but they're, they're irregular. They have these prominences that stick out of them. So those would be irregular bones. And then here's an interesting bone. There's a bone called a sesamoid bone. And the sesamoid bone, the most famous of the sesamoid bones, is the kneecap or the patella. And what's interesting about the patella and sesamoid bones in general is that they grow inside of a tendon. So in the tendon goes over the knee, this bone grows and develops and it allows it to create kind of a um, leverage system in which it can get a better pull. So those would be examples. Uh, that's an example of a sesamoid bone. Let's talk about joints for a moment because we have got joints throughout the body and these joints are just where, where two bones meet. Sometimes there's movement, sometimes there's not movement. But when we look at it, bones and joints, here we go. Look, they're designed, these joints are designed to provide bones a meaning of being manipulated, allowing for movement through segments of the body. They provide stability. They allow for movement to take place. And they also try to minimize some unwanted movement as well. And all the joints in the human body are linked together through the kinetic chain, through our human movement system. Movement of one of those joints is going to affect other joints. And so we look at primarily the synovial joints. That's the ones that we think of. Synovial joints are the ones that we are moving. And there are other joints that aren't really moving that much. And the reason we have these synovial joints and why they're there um, is there's a fluid substance called synovial fluid inside the capsule that surrounds every synovial joint, and that is called the synovial capsule or the articular capsule. And what that does, it's designed to protect, 
is designed to lubricate through the synovial fluid. It delivers nutrients in that area and it helps to absorb shock. And so these are really valuable joints in our body and the way that they work and they allow us to move and to function. So let's look now briefly at a, just a brief overview of the muscular system. And what's the purpose of that? Well, the muscular system generates forces that allows us to move our body. And as we produce internal tension under the control of the nervous system, we manipulate bones of our body and we produce movement and tendons are what attaches muscles to the bones and they provide the anchor, which muscles exert force and they control the bone and the joint. The problem with tendons though, is that they are not very vascular. Muscles, a lot of vascularization. It allows for a lot of nutrients to take place but the joints don't really have that much of a blood supply. And so when there's injury or damage to a joint, then it makes them a little bit slower to repair. And they are a little bit slower to adaptation. This is one of the things as a trainer to be aware of because my tendons are slower to adaptation. My joints, maybe even the ligaments surrounding the joints, the ligaments are what attaches bone to bone at these joints. And they may not adapt as well or as easily, certainly not as quickly as muscles do. And that's why it's very important to go through a progressive exercise program because just because you have a new client and just because they can lift something heavy or they can lift something a lot of times, doesn't mean that their rest of their body is quite ready to do so. So start progressively, higher repetitions, lower weight, a little bit lower volume, and then progress them slowly, and then build them up, and then get to work on them, right? So then you can certainly start putting them through uh, through the rope, uh, through the ropes, and through the ringer. I think that's what I'm trying to do as a personal trainer, but building, and we have to look at building these things safely. Now, as we continue into the muscular system, let's look at muscle fibers, and the muscle fibers have wrappings around them. And these wrappings, we oftentimes refer to as fascia. Luke, I am your fascia. And this fascia, this surrounding of the muscles, they are protective of the muscles. They separate them into different bundles that we'll talk about. And the muscle fibers have several versions of it. So here we go with the muscle itself. Well, let's talk about it. here are the fibers. Let me just name them in order from superficial to deep. Superficial is epimesium, then there's the paramecium, and then there's the endomesium. So let's talk about each of these. So epimesium, it is the most superficial. So if you think that prefix epa or epi, it is over or on top of, so it is surrounding the entire muscle. So if you look at maybe, let's go with your bicep again. The entire bicep around the, the muscle in general is surrounded by the epimesium. And then there's the paramecium. So what happens is that the muscle itself, large and broad, then is bundled together. And inside of those bundles or around those bundles of muscle fibers, called uh, a fascicle, the paramecium, it surrounds the bundles. And then inside of those bundles are the muscle cells, each individual muscle fiber. 
and each individual muscle fiber is surrounded by the endo, endo surrounding inside of it, which endo means inner or within. So it is the inner lining around the muscle. And kind of interesting as these all move together, the fascia moves from that muscle and into the, the tendon and it attaches to the bone but it doesn't attach to the bone bone, it attaches to the fascia surrounding the bone called the, the, the periosteum. So everything, we talk about fascia a lot more than we used to, and we understand the connectedness of the fascia as it helps to um, create this network around the entire body. All right, so the muscle fibers, each individual muscle fiber or cell this is now what we're doing. So we're going to look at the muscle fibers, the muscle cells, and there's just a very small unit of the muscle fiber. And that little contractile unit, we'll look at that with something called the sliding filament theory. And here we go in the sarcomere, this little line, a Z line to Z line, and you've got the uh, actin and myosin proteins inside of there. And what happens is that that myosin, the thicker filament, the actin is the thinner filament, and it's just gonna, actin's gonna move right over the myosin. And this is called the sliding filament theory. And in the sliding filament theory, we've got several things that are gonna take place. And, and I'm, I'm gonna direct you to the NASM CPT podcast that was released on June 11th, 2020, entitled The Sliding Filament Theory, to get a little more information and content about this particular happening. Now, we go into detail in that one, and so be aware a lot of the information in that is, is complex. It's in your textbook, most of it, but um, pay attention to the main parts of it. So here's one of these main parts I wanna talk about. It's called the excitation-contraction coupling. And excitation-contraction coupling is that there's something that excites the muscle and causes it to contract. Well, what excites it? The central nervous system. Central nervous system is sending a, an, an electrical signal and that electrical signal turns into a chemical signal and the chemicals release something called acetylcholine. And that causes the release of calcium ions, which creates the contraction of muscle. But there's another principle to be heard called the all or nothing principle. And what the all or nothing principle says is that when a muscle contracts, it contracts 100%. It contracts with everything it's got. So why don't every time we pick up a pencil to write or every time we type on our keyboard, when we move, why are we not just pounding the keys every as hard as we can every time if it's all or nothing? Well, it's because our nervous system decides which units we're going to contract. So not all of our muscle units contract at the same time, but the ones that we innervate and we tell to activate, which is not all of them, can say, let's, uh, let's, push this very lightly so it innervates enough muscle fibers to fire everything it can, but not all of our muscle fibers will fire. Well, this is kind of interesting because it leads us to this other concept where the more dexterity we have and need, we actually have many, many more 
motor units that are going to and saying, hey, we can separate and do this dexterity because I have a lot of different ways to innervate. Now, the larger muscles, they innervate larger masses of muscles. So think of like your glutes or your quadriceps. And so as we start to do max strength training, as we start to build our strength in our base, suddenly our brain, instead of saying hypertrophy, it is now saying recruit more muscle fiber, get more muscles that have been dormant that don't really fire that often and get them to fire more. And the more we recruit, the more we innervate. Once we innervate them, send a signal. When it signal goes, every single muscle fiber that gets elicited with that will fire 100%. That's the all or nothing principle. All right, uh, muscle fiber types. Now, there we're going to talk primarily about type two, a uh, type one, and type two muscle fibers. And here we go, just an overview of these in general, and then I'll direct you to another podcast where we got a little bit deeper into the concept. So type one muscle fibers, they're gonna be more capillaries, more blood, more mitochondria, more myoglobin. They increase the oxygen delivery. They are primarily oxygen dependent when it comes to how metabolism takes place. Generally, they're much smaller in size, and because they're smaller, there's less force produced. But the good news is that they're slow to fatigue. They are endurance type muscle fibers. There's long-term contractions that take place. Hence, the muscles that stabilize our joints are oftentimes type one muscle fibers because we need joint stabilization throughout the day. Also known as slow twitch. So when we go to engage them, they react, they engage or twitch much slower than a type two muscle fiber. Well, a type two muscle fiber, it's gonna have fewer capillaries, gonna have fewer mitochondria, fewer myoglobin. And sometimes a type one fiber is referred to as a red muscle fiber. Why? Because of all the blood, all the mitochondria, all the myoglobin that's in there allows it to be red. Well, because this type two muscle fiber has fewer capillaries, fewer blood, um, uh, mitochondria, myoglobin in it, then it's going to be sometimes referred to as white muscle fibers. They decrease oxygen delivery, but they tend to be larger in size. Larger in size allow them to produce more force, but there is a difference. When we start to produce more force, we fatigue more quickly. And they have the short-term contraction that allows them to contract quickly. Hence, type two muscle fibers are oftentimes referred to as fast twitch muscle fibers. So if you go back to the NASM CPT podcast, episode 21, there's an episode called Can Chickens Fly? at which this is discussed. So go back and check out that particular episode. All right, so that takes us through this component of the NASM CPT podcast in which we are going through a review of the basics of applied science and nutrition concepts. We have more of these to come in this series, and we will continue this over the course of several weeks. For those of you who are looking to take the exam, I think that you'll find this helpful. For those of you who are already personal trainers, I think there's such value in going back over this content. Because the truth of the matter is, many of us take these tests, we learn the information, and then we forget it as time goes on. 
And so it's nice to have a review of that content that you, some of you learned recently and some of you learned many years ago to be reacquainted with this information and this content. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, feel free to reach out to me uh, on email. You can reach out at rick.richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at nasm.org, or you can hit me up on Instagram at dr.richie. Thank you so much. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.